Good morning. It's great to be with you guys today. Um, I've been feeling uh, stretched uh, this week, and just there's a lot uh, happening with our family and uh, in our church, good things and and, uh, challenging things. Um, So I've been... uh, Kind of maybe a little bit more dependent in prayer this week than I have for for other weeks, which is a good thing. And then uh, I come this morning and and I feel like the bar has been lowered a little bit because all I have to do is remember my wife's name, and uh, and we'll be good to go. <laughs> so thanks, Pete, for uh, for for uh, knocking that one out of the park for me. Appreciate it. Um, we we are uh, we're in a series in Matthew's Gospel. We're looking at the Beatitudes. Uh, it's in Matthew 5, verses 1 to 10, and uh, we'll have the, the verses up on the screen. But what we're talking about uh, through this series, and this is week 7 of 8, is, uh, is that Jesus has given us a, an invitation to life in his kingdom, and that that kingdom is upside down from the kingdom of this world. So for us to be uh, members of his kingdom, it means uh, when we've found the king, that it's going to look a certain way. There are going to be certain attributes that are are true of us as we discover his kingdom and that there are going to be certain attributes that are true of us as we live out the the, the life of the king. Um, and so we, we've gone through uh, seven, well today will be seven out of the eight. And uh, the last several weeks we've been talking about uh, kind of the fruit that comes from living a life underneath the, the transforming power of our king, that we will live lives that are upside down from the lives of this world, and we'll see these uh, transformations begin to take place in us, take root in us increasingly over time. And uh, another way to think about that is that we will begin to experience in the here and now eternal life. Now, I don't know what you... Uh, understand eternal life to be, for most of us we think of eternal life as being uh, the life that we get when we die and we go to heaven. Um, but eternal life, the way that Jesus uses that terminology has, has everything to do with the, the future, but it has just as much to do with the present. That, that we are uh, members of his kingdom, which means we experience eternal life now, and what eternal life is, is, is the life of the future brought into the present. It's the life that's secured to us by Jesus in the age to come. And that life, we're told, is available to us today in this world that we, in a sense, get to live out of the power of the world that Jesus is bringing in now. And that's a radical concept, if you think about it. The fact that we as a, as a church, that you as individual members of the body have access to a completely different kind of life than the life you see your coworkers living and your neighbors living and even your family members living because you have the king in you. And, and I, I think we, we don't wrestle and grasp at the full weight of that concept. That if we did, we would actually live uh, radically transformative lives. Now, what that looks like and what Jesus has been talking about in these statements is that we'll begin to see these radical transformations in things like we'll, we'll be people that are full of mercy, that we'll have a new way of relating to other people, that we'll 
we talked about this last week, we'll have purity. Purity of heart. A transformed heart. A transformed mind. The way that we relate to God. And today we're going to talk about is peacemaking, which is a transformed mission. That you and I have a, a new purpose in the world if we are living in Jesus' kingdom. So Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed, or we've been translating it prosperous. Prosperous are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Prosperous are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And what Jesus is saying is, when you come to me and live in me, you will become someone who spreads the peace that I give to you. You will inevitably have a new direction to your life. That if I'm truly a king, and how, how many of you have lived underneath the authority of a king, like an earthly king? I see James's hand back there. Not even that's true, right? Because you have a queen, which maybe it's the same thing, but what I'm, I'm not from the UK, but I have friends who are, and we have body members here who are, and what I'm told is that, that you give reverence to that person, but you're not under their authority necessarily. It's not like they can order you around and go, well, you, you know, they can't make a decree and say, everybody needs to come home to, the, to, to England now. Like, make it happen. But, but a, a true king has that kind of authority. We're, and so if Jesus is our king, then that means for us something that we are not generally in touch with as Americans, which is we have someone who gets to say, your entire life is about me now. Your entire life is about me. And if your whole life is about me, then your mission in life is to bring the peace that I bring to you and to spread it to those that are around you. Now, in order to understand what that means and what that looks like, you have to ask the question, what is the peace that he brings? What is the peace that Jesus brings? You have to understand what that means in order to be makers of peace. Um, and, and peace, as it's referred to in the Bible, is not generally um, the absence of anxiety, but it's the resolution of hostility. It's the absence of war. It's, it's experiencing um, flourishing, peace, shalom, as opposed to conflict and war and disagreement and hatred. And when the Bible refers to peace, it's not just talking about kind of an inner serenity, sort of a Zen experience that we are at peace with ourselves or at peace with the world. It's talking about a peace treaty. You can't have inner peace unless you've been declared to be at peace. That there is an end to hostility. Now, where do we get that from? Romans 5.1 says, Paul is saying this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, peace means that there is now an end to a war, that the war between us and God is over. Now, immediately, you should ask yourselves, hold on, what war? Like, I didn't realize we were at war. Um, this is what Romans 8, verse 7 says, that the mind... Governed by the flesh, the flesh is, 
is uh, our kind of our natural state of being without the Spirit of God in us. The flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It can't do so. Here's what Paul is saying. All of us, every single human being on the planet, in our natural state of being, apart from God's interventing, interventional act on our hearts, are at war with our Creator. That we're hostile towards Him. That we're fighting against Him. That we, in our natural state, don't submit to Him, nor do we want to submit to Him. And even, nor can we submit to Him. Do you realize that? The people around you that don't know God can't live according to the laws of God because they're not written on their hearts yet. They don't want God. They don't think they need God. And because of that, they can't live a life of God unless God does something to put the war to an end. That's an incredible claim. That's a sobering claim. Because that's different than what you hear religion is to be about. When most people think about Christianity or religion in general, they think about trying to be a good enough person and do spiritual things so that somehow God will accept you. And this says that will inevitably fail. That we're at war and the only way to be put at peace is through Jesus Christ Himself. You want proof of how hostile we are towards God? The only time that God ever became vulnerable to us The only time he ever became weak, the only time he was within arm's reach, what did we do to him? We crucified him. We killed him. We murdered him. Now, if I, I don't know where your heart, you know, it intercedes with that. Um, Most people that I would talk to, though, in my neighborhood and people, friends that aren't believers in Jesus, would go, hold on, time out. What do you mean we? <laughs> like, wasn't it them? You know, 2,000 years ago, like, they were upset, they were mad, like, they, they were the ones that did it, the blood's on their hands, it's not on my hands. Like, I'm not hostile towards God. Okay, maybe I'm indifferent, maybe I'm even disobedient, but I don't hate Him, I'm not at war with Him. Here's the thing, though. Unless you see that you are at war with Him and that you've been at war with Him, you'll never know what it means to be at peace with Him. And you'll never have His peacemaking ability flow through you to other people. Now, here's what's going on. The reason that you and I don't think that we're at war with God is because most of the time our war with Him is a cold war. Shots aren't being fired on a regular basis. But it's a cold war. It's kind of like um, an iceberg. The, my uh, five-year-old son has been really fascinated with the Titanic recently. And so we he bought him a couple books and we've watched a couple documentaries and he's just fascinated by the whole thing. And one of the things he's been fascinated by is, this, you know, is icebergs. 
And the fact that you can have this little teeny, you know, piece of ice that's sticking up below, above the surface, and yet below it, you can have this enormous mass of ice that nobody ever sees, but it's really there. And the only time that you know it's there is when something runs into it, and then all of a sudden you realize how real it truly is. Our hostility towards God works in, very, in the very same way. We think that at most we are somehow indifferent to God, but then something happens. Something acts upon our lives and our world and our experience and it brings the rest of the iceberg up to the surface and we realize suddenly how big it actually is. Do you want a couple examples? <laughs> Some of you are like, yes, I want... And others are like, no, please don't go there. <laughs> I'll talk about myself. How about that? It'll make it easier on you. The times when my hostility towards God comes to the surface, when it gets revealed for me, it's usually in one of two ways. It is either in times when I experience failure or in times when I experience pain. Things seem to be going along swimmingly. I am cruising at 20 knots through the North Atlantic Sea, waiting to get to my destination, thinking that there is a pebble on the horizon, and suddenly... Something happens. I fail or I experience a season of pain and all of a sudden I realize how big of an iceberg is in my way and I get really angry. See, because when those things come at us, all of a sudden, isn't this true? Suddenly, you break out the heavy artillery at God. And you curse him in your mind and you, you, you hate him with your emotions and you rail against him in your actions. Why are you doing that? Where did it come from? It was there the whole time. You just gotten good at hiding it or ignoring it until something comes along and triggers it. And then you realize how hostile you are. So why is it that Failure and suffering, failure and pain or trials, however you want to put it, trigger our hostility towards God because both have a way of revealing. When they come to the surface, they bring with them our underlying beliefs about what God is like. And it's our beliefs about what God is like that is really the source of our hostility. So think about it. When you experience failure, and when I experience failure, we're, we're talking about me, not about you, we're talking about me. When I experience failure, what's happen- I'm confronted with the reality that I'm not enough in myself. When I've truly failed, I have to look at myself in the mirror and go, I am not enough. I thought I was, and I'm not. And th- why is that so difficult to do? It- it's because, in a sense, we... All of us know, and I know this too, that, that we are supposed to be perfect. We're supposed, we were designed by God to seek and want a, a righteous life. Remember that? We talked about that a few weeks ago. We're, we're in and of ourselves. We, we expect perfection from us. But when we look in the mirror, we don't see that perfection. And there's a gap between what we think we should see and experience and do and what we are actually seeing and experiencing our lives producing. And when we see that gap, we look back at God and we, 
you may not say this out loud, and I don't know if I've said this out loud, but I've certainly said this in my heart. God, you are too demanding. I'm trying to prove that I'm a decent, good person, but I'm being confronted with the reality that I'm not enough. And so what do I do when I am confronted with that reality? I say all kinds of things like, you know, this is just unfair. Or I tried my best. Or, you know, if the circumstances were different, if they hadn't failed me, I wouldn't have failed. See, it's, it's because we're afraid of failure that what do we do? When you experience failure, when I experience failure, here's, here's what I tend to do. I say, I will do it better next time. Or, I will try something different that has lower, a lower level of expectation so that I don't have to meet the high level of expectation of the thing that came before it. At the root of it, all of us, we're longing to be a success. And failure confronts us with the reality that we're not. See, typically, here, the result of that is that we, when we fail, we're in need of forgiveness. And because we have a hard time accepting the reality of it, and we don't want to receive forgiveness, we'll say things like, well, maybe God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. That is a rejection of what God is really like, because we know that God is a gracious, loving, caring God who, who, who pursues us in our failures. That's warfare. Here's the other way, is in times of trial. Times of pain and suffering. Um, Because what happens in times of pain and suffering? We're not confronted with the reality that we're not enough, but we're confronted with the reality that what we want out of life is not going to come to pass. That we're not going to get what our hearts are after. And so what do we do? We say things to God like, why did this happen? Things were not supposed to go this way. This is not fair. I want a better shake out of life. See, it's, it's when God, it's when you encounter a situation where God confronts your plans, your will for your life, your desires, that you suddenly break out the heavy artillery. Don't you do it too? Or is this just me? Maybe it's just me. <laughs> right? See, uh, why do we do that? It, it, it's because we're, we're trucking along thinking that God was there basically to help us towards our ends. Right? He, he's, he's there to help us to live our best life now. He's there to come alongside and, and meet the desires of our hearts. And what does the trial do? It, it, it demonstrates to you that God is not actually your personal assistant, but He's your Lord. And the reason that we cringe at that is because we, we don't want to believe that, that God is actually in control, that we can somehow take our hands off the wheel of our life and trust Him with things that we think that only we are trustworthy with. I, mean, I, I saw this hostility in me this week. 
This week did not go according to the plan of Jay's playbook. And by the time I got to Friday, just to be perfectly honest with you, there was all kinds of hatred and hostility bubbling out of my heart. I was really angry at God for the way that things went this week. I see it in me. Do you see it in you? Here's the heart of our warfare. The essence of our war is a desire for us to replace God. It is a desire for us to be able to define our own conditions and to decide our own path. It's Genesis 3 all over again where we look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we say, I want to be able to determine what's good and bad, right and wrong for my life all the time. And so long as God agrees with me in those definitions of what's good and bad and right and wrong, we're on great terms. But the moment that he contradicts me, I'm going to war with him. See, it's in those times when God gets in our way that we realize just how deep our ice goes and just how cold our hearts are towards him. See, and unless you see it in yourself, and unless you're honest with God that it's there, you can never be at peace with Him. Because at best, you're selling yourself a lie that's keeping you from experiencing true peace. And what you actually have is a ceasefire rather than a peace treaty. Which one are you living under? Jesus says prosperous are the peacemakers. And peacemaking begins with admitting the fact that you're at war with God. That you scoff at His demands, that you think they're unfair, and that you reject His plans for your life and that you want your own way. And that every single one of us has actively rebelled against His standards and His will for our life. How many of you feel at peace right now? Like, I thought this was a message about peace. And I'm not feeling the love here. (laughs) There's good news, though. There's great news in this. Because, in a sense, when, when we realize this, when we come to our senses, when we finally wave the white flag and we go, okay, it's me, not you, then we discover immediately... There, there is no gap when, when we come to our senses and we, we, we relent of our hostility and we recognize that it's there. We discover immediately that God has put the hostility to death. The moment you realize you're at war, you also realize at the very same moment that the war has been ended. Because once you realize that, you realize that God actually did send His Son. And yes, We did kill him when he was sent to us. But that was God's plan from the very beginning that that would happen. That in Jesus' death, God would settle the debt and that he would take away the punishment for his rebellious kids. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the, the new creation has come. He or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
The moment you realize that you're the hostile one, you realize that God disarmed your hostility. That He doesn't count it against you. And because He doesn't count it against you, but He counted it against His Son in your place, that now you get what His Son has, which is the Holy Spirit, in your heart so that you can be changed from the inside out and begin to, to draw near to this God that you've been hostile to. You begin to, to, to love His commands for you because they know, you know that they lead you to life. You, you begin to, to want His desires for you. And that's how you know that you're becoming new. That you have the Spirit in you. Is that you no longer want your way and your hostility. You want His way and His peace. You realize suddenly that He's been lovingly wooing you back to Himself. And when you see that, family, that means you're waking up. That's why it's good news. And that's the Gospel. That God does not count your sins against you. But He wants to lead you in the path of life. And that, so, I mean, think about the, the things that we already talked about, right? Failure and trials. That means on the one hand, when you understand the gospel, then you, you understand that, that you can go through failures without the need to prove yourselves to God. That He satisfied all the unreasonable demands in His Son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus went to the cross to meet every standard that you and I fail to live up to. And so that means every time that we fail, when we fail ourselves, when we fail other people, when we fail to God, that doesn't keep us from running to God. It forces us to run to God because we realize that when we run to God, we don't have an adversary anymore. We have somebody who can provide us peace. I love the way Colossians 1.21-22 says it. That you, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Why would He do that? Keep reading. It's to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. There's no failure that you can experience that will remove His approval over your heart because His approval of you is not based on your performance. It's based on Jesus Christ. And so yeah, you're going to fail. But when you fail, you come to your senses and you say, God, I failed again. And you knew I would fail. And I'm at war with you. And this shows how. But you knew this was in my heart from the first day I gave myself to you. And you've already covered it. And I'm free from the accusation. I don't need to live under that condemnation. That brings incredible freedom. See, if you're at peace with God, then you're no longer afraid of failure because failure doesn't restart the war. The war is already won. You belong to Him. Now, on the other hand, the Gospel shows you that, that you don't have to be uh, afraid of His plans for you either. You don't have to be afraid of trials. You don't have to be afraid of suffering. You don't have to be afraid of pain. Because the Gospel shows you that you have a good Father and that His plans are not unreasonable for you. In fact, if we're coming to our senses, if we're actually at peace with God, we'll realize that we're the ones that are unreasonable to think that we somehow know better than our Creator 
about how our life should run. I mean, how foolish is that, right? I mean, if, if, if our two-year-old son came to us and said, here's how I think the week should go. Here's what I want to do every day and here's what I want to have for every meal. And you should obey me and make sure that my will is done. We as parents would look at him and go, okay, but if we did that to you, you'd be dead or, <laughs> or, or seriously harmed by the end of the week. We're in a far better position as parents to make decisions on your behalf than you are to make decisions for yourself. If that's true of an earthly parent, of an earthly child, how much more do you think it's true of a heavenly father to an earthly child? Which is what you and I are. I was listening to something this week and um, there's a, a woman who's a, a pastor's wife. She was on a panel and they were asking questions related to um, people and pastors and ministry and the kinds of struggles that they face. And uh, one of the questions that was given was, uh, what should a pastor do when they're experiencing a bad week? And I thought, this is perfect. Like, this is exactly what I need to hear. So I'm listening intently, and they're all talking about strategies and different things that they can do. And they get to this one woman, who's the wife of a pastor, and she said, I think the first thing that pastors should do is repent of their idolatry. And you could, like, the whole audience went, <gasps> Like, what? Why would she say something like that? And she went on to explain herself, and she said, basically, like, if, if you think that you're having a bad week, then you're, in a sense, saying that you know better than God about the way that your week should go. And there's probably something about your week and your expectations over it and what you wanted to do, that you were looking for satisfaction and what you were going to accomplish. And God somehow frustrated that and you're more committed to your plan for your week than you are to him and seeking him and experiencing him in the midst of him not allowing you to have things go your way. And that's idolatry. And what do we do with idols? We repent of them. And you could experience, I certainly experienced it in my heart, like going from shock to conviction to freedom. So when you face a gap between your hopes and expectations and the reality that God unfolds, someone who's truly at peace with God knows that whatever the circumstances look like, because the war is over, Romans 8.28 is true. You know Romans 8.28? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His good purpose. Those at peace with God cling to that verse. See, it, when you're at peace with God, it's, it's not that your failures and your disappointments go away. It's not that somehow they vanish in smoke and they're like wow where did they go i can't they don't go away it's just they're they're brought into perspective all of a sudden you see the the reality of those things in light of your peace i mean it's it's kind of like you know this the stars are there still there in the sky but suddenly the sun is shining which outshines the stars And you see everything else in light of the reality that you have peace with Him. And that peace is invading absolutely everything that you do. Do you have that peace?
if you do, the result will be that you'll be a peacemaker. Now, that's the second question. What does it mean to be a peacemaker, right? This is, peace with God means we'll make peace on earth. And Jesus said, prosperous are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. That somehow being a peacemaker and being a child of God, those two realities are connected to one another. I, I think about it this way, that peacemakers are children who live out the family business. Um, in many cultures around the world, it's not so true in American culture, but in many places around the world, including Jesus' culture, children do what with the family business? They carry it on, right? So if, you're, if your dad is a mason, you're, you, you're in masonry. If your dad is a carpenter, guess what? That's what your profession is. If your dad is a farmer and owns land, then you end up farming. By and large, you end up carrying on the family name and the family legacy by continuing what the parents passed on to you. So if we're children of God, that means that we have a family business. Now, what is God's family business? What is his purpose in the world? What is his mission? This is one that you, got, you actually get to answer. So I'm going to shut up and you're gonna, you, you can respond. What's God's, what's the family business? Peacemaking. Okay, what does that mean? Absence of turmoil. Absence of war and hate, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if, if we're children who know our dad and we're in the family business, we're on a, we're on a seek and rescue mission for other kids. To bring them home. To reconnect them with their long lost dad who loves them, has been searching for them their whole life. Though they don't know it. What else? It's a good way to think about it, right? I mean, think of the things that Jesus talks about. Loving your enemies, like family members. Reconciling all things back to God so that this world will reflect his peace. Do you, do you know peace is actually impossible? We've already established this. Peace is impossible without the Prince of Peace operating over the world. So how, you know, when people go, uh, let's pray for peace on earth. How is that going to happen? It's not going to happen until every individual uh, combatant realizes that the war is over. How do they realize the war is over? When they get connected to the one who put the war to death. That's the only way. Which means then to be a child of God... To be a a participant in Jesus' kingdom, to have gone from war to peace yourself, to to gone from from being an enemy to a family member, it doesn't just mean what so many Christians think it means, which is basically you get saved and then you wait around until you die and then you go to heaven. No way! You're an agent of the peace that you've received because the war... People, 
I mean, the, the war has been settled in, in one sense because of what God has done, but the war is still raging in the hearts of every person who's not reconciled to Him, right? And now you and I, having been reconciled to our dad, now spend the rest of our life on the mission of bringing people back into the family. That's, that's the whole reason why Charles Spurgeon says that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Because peacemakers are children of God, and children of God are peacemakers. And you can't be one without the other. Second Corinthians 5 again says, He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God Himself were making His appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, this is the, the mission is that you and I, we go to God's enemies. And in some cases, we go to our enemies and we announce that the war is over. We declare the good news that now everyone everywhere has a seat at the family table. Thanksgiving is open to everyone who once cursed God. Now, doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound like something if we have found peace we should give our entire lives to? That, that, that like all day, every day should be devoted towards this mission? If it's as, really as great as it is? It sounds that way, doesn't it? Um, because there's, there's no greater news than this, right? And so there's no greater mission than this. Yeah, but if we're honest, we're not making appeals to people all day, every day, are we? You're not and I'm not imploring people day and night to be reconciled to God. Why is that? I mean, isn't that, when you put it that way, isn't it funny to you that we wouldn't do that? And I, I, here's what I think is at the heart of it. Um, that we're going to talk about this more next week too, so the fun's just starting. <laughs> um, the reason that we don't do it is because we're not willing to bear the cost of peacemaking. We're not bearing the cost of peacemaking. See, there, there are requirements to the mission of making peace. There are things that it demands of us. I'm thinking of two things in particular, um, and I don't like to do either of them. And those are that we need to be willing to make waves and we need to be willing to become fools. You can't make peace without making waves and you can't make peace without becoming a fool. Now you think, wait, what do you mean waves? I thought we were talking about peace. Right? I, I, I try as much as possible to stay away from making waves. I want, I want to smooth things over. Like I want a glassy surface. I don't want waves. Yeah, that's peacekeeping, not peacemaking. Um, see, if, if we're the kind of people that are like, I, I don't want to make a fuss, I don't want to rock the boat, I, I don't, you know, I, I just want things to go smoothly. That can't be peacemaking, because who's the best peacemaker that ever lived? 
Jesus. What what is the week in which he did the, the bulk of his peacemaking to declare an end to the war between us and God? Easter week, right? Sometimes we call that Holy Week. Do you know that that was one of the most tumultuous weeks in the history of the city of Jerusalem? I mean, it, it looked as though chaos was, was breaking out all over the city the week that Jesus strode through the door as Hosanna, come to save. Peacemaking makes waves. It, it disturbs peace in order to create peace. Now, Paul was a peacemaker, right? And everywhere he went, he, he was mocked and criticized and sometimes stoned and left for dead. Real peacemaking means you have to be willing to make waves. Because the cross is offensive. It, it says to people, the only way to be reconciled to God is that you need to come and die. And that's a very offensive message to most people. And I think we're, we're so committed to keeping the current peace that we're, we, we don't have opportunities to make true peace when it comes to reconciling people to God. Because we think that if we keep the peace in our jobs, we don't say anything, just fly under the radar. We keep the peace in our homes, we keep the peace in our schools or in our neighborhoods, that somehow we're, we're, we're helping when really what we're doing is we're just kind of glossing over the problem. In many cases, the hostility is growing and we're not putting it to death. Peacemakers call out hostility. They give it a name and they're willing to make waves. Not to increase hostility, but to, to, to resolve hostility. See, because to see people who are at war with each other and at war with God and to say and do nothing is not peacemaking. It's not being a child of God. So here, here's the question, just for you to jot down and consider the Spirit might want to call you to. Where is the Spirit calling you to make waves this week? Where is He calling you to speak up? It might be about an injustice that's happening or hostility that's happening or hatred that's happening or disagreements that are happening. Where does he want you to give it a name and to call it what it is? Maybe he wants you to implore somebody in your life to be reconciled to God. Will you be willing to make waves? Now here's the flip side. This is the other thing. Some of you are great wave makers. <laughs> right? Like, you have absolutely no problem just telling people how it is all day long. And you really don't give a flip if people are offended or not by your words. And so you just kind of walk through life and you're like, well, I'm just telling the truth. This is how it is. And there are ripples and waves going on all over you, but you're as calm as a cucumber. Peacemaking isn't just about making waves. We have to be willing to be fools, which means entering into the conflict itself. Um, 
Because this is what peacemaking is. Peacemaking isn't just telling people about the reality and and telling people what they need to be doing with their lives or or having demands and plans for for the people around you and expecting them to jump when you say so high. Peacemaking is about you coming into someone's life to help them seek the peace and realize the peace that they could have with God. It's about asking the question, what is God doing to make peace in this person's life and how can I be a facilitator of that process for that person so that they would ultimately realize what they could have in Christ? But the reality is, when, when you make that your effort, when you make that the thing that you're going to be about this week, there is risk involved, isn't there? Because you could tell somebody about Jesus and they might reject you. Or worse, they might report you. You could invite someone over for dinner who's been lonely and they reject you and don't take the offer. You could extend yourself in thousands of different ways and look like a fool. And I think we are so consumed with not looking foolish that we don't make the effort to make peace. Why? It's because we're still looking to people to give us the peace that we have from the one that made us. Isn't it true? When you don't want to look foolish with the people that you respect, when you want them to like you and think well of you, Aren't you, in a sense, looking for peace from them rather than extending peace to them? That's what I do. I, uh, I'm, in our neighborhood, we're kind of known as the, the party people in a good way um, <laughs> uh, because we're, we're, we're generous with extending an invitation to people. We do a lot of house parties and we do movie nights and we... You know, we've become the facilitators of our block parties. We're, we're invitational, and people have gravitated towards that. And we don't get a lot of no's when it comes to inviting people into community. And that's part of God's blessing. But here's where my, this is the check in my spirit. This is where I go, ooh, I don't, I don't I, because I've built up a relational bank with a lot of these people who I now enjoy and respect and like and who enjoy and respect and like me, when I start to steer that conversation towards Jesus and the offense of the cross, I am risking everything that I've built with that person. Am I not? Because the, now everything that I've done means that they could look at me and go, oh, you're one of those? Maybe I won't go to the next party. Maybe I won't go to the next block thing. Maybe I won't go to the next movie night. And in my fear of them rejecting me, I don't take the additional step to make peace between them and God. Because I just want them to like me. I'm speaking to myself right now. Hopefully you're included in this conversation. God, am I willing to be a fool for you? Am I willing to look totally foolish to, 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 to bring you into the midst of what you've already been doing 
in my neighborhood, in my family, with my friends, with my coworkers, with my acquaintances. And it comes back to this, and this is where we'll end. When you get that check, when you, when you feel yourself resistant towards whatever that additional step is of making peace where you're going to look like a fool if things go bad, maybe it's not telling your neighbors about Jesus. Maybe it's inviting a, a, a black sheep in the family to Thanksgiving dinner. Maybe it's a thousand other things. But whatever that next step is where you go, oh, I can't take that next step because if I do, I'm walking into fool's land and people might think worse of me. Family, please remember at that moment that Jesus became the ultimate fool for you. That his mission of peacemaking was at the top of his agenda and he didn't care if he was mocked as the king of the Jews hanging on a cross outside of the city that he created so that he could welcome you as an enemy back into the family. He didn't give a rip about any of that so long as it procured your place at the table. Think about that the next time you don't want to extend peace. And I'm convinced that when you do, the Spirit will fill you with what to do next. I don't have to give you an application to say, here's what you do, because he'll tell you. Wouldn't that be great news? Let's pray. Father, we, we've been saved to be peacemakers. The war that is, has been in our hearts against you that that flares up even now from time to time, even if we've walked with you for decades, it still flares up. You knew absolutely every single one of those skirmishes and you've done battle against them before we were even born. Thank you. Thank you that there's nothing standing in our way. And Holy Spirit, we need you to make us into makers of peace. That we, if if we're timid and, and shy away from conflict, that you would enable us to be bold and make waves. And if we are great at making waves, but we don't want to be fools, God, that we would be fools for you. Lord, come and change our hearts. Only you can do it. So we pray in your name. Amen.